Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. For a lot of men, porn has become the mistress in their relationship right? It's the other woman. And porn has become something that they use to help them regulate their nervous system. So when they're feeling anxious or angry or lonely or bored or frustrated, or they can't sleep or whatever it is, they watch porn and they get off and their body releases a whole bunch of neurochemicals that allows their nervous system to reset. And so it can seem not so bad on the surface, but it becomes this sort of insidious problem that is lingering in the background of your relationship and your life. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Hi everyone, today's episode will form part of an occasional series exploring masculinity. Men and masculinity are struggling. This theme, this crisis, has been raised here on Wild several times by experts and by you, listeners on my various forums, and I felt it was time to go a little deeper on the topic. As a culture, we need to find ways to understand each other better so we can navigate everything else that we are being bludgeoned with. And so this series will form part of that mission. I'll be honest here, and I think I need to be before we kick off. I feel frustrated by and confounded by some men's behaviour in the world today and the disconnects playing out between the genders. I admit with you here that a lot of the bad experiences I've had as a single woman for a long time means I've probably witnessed some of the most problematically insecure expressions of masculinity, not because single men are lacking per se, but because I think the dating game has warped gender dynamics that profoundly. Also, I can't deny that my relationship with men is somewhat informed by the fact I'm of that generation who was told by my feminist forebears that I was equal to men. And in fact, and very problematically, I could beat the boys at their own game. But I got to adulthood and realised that men had not been assisted or coached by anyone on their end to move beyond their own problematic gender constructions. So I got to my 20s and I got hit with this massive disconnect. I was met by sexual harassment, misogyny, pay disparity, lacking communication skills and the rest which I often fear clouds the relationship I have with a lot of awesome men in my life. I have four awesome brothers, I have a robust relationship with my dad, and I can safely say that more than half of my friends are men. 
Okay, so now that that's all on the table, there's also this. There is no doubt that men today are suffering. American colleges and universities now enrol roughly six women for every four men. In Australia, women currently represent 60% of all completed undergraduate and postgraduate higher degree courses. Men are dying of the diseases of despair that we talk about here on WILD quite a lot. So we're talking suicide, alcohol and opioid use. And they're dying of these at three times the rate of women. Sperm count is down 70% for a whole bunch of reasons. The percentage of men with at least six close friends has fallen by half since 1990. And one in five single men today says he has zero close friends. This is all both heartbreaking to me and also worrying because these issues all have domino effects. I follow all these trends with genuine concern and a desire for compassion, but I sense I don't have a full understanding of why it's happening and what can be done, hence this series. So the first guest in this occasional series is Connor Beaton. I'm not quite sure how I first came across Connor. I follow a bunch of men doing work in this space on social media, and I think the social media algorithms saw him land in my feeds. And for some time, I've been fascinated by his very pithy and calm wisdoms on Instagram. Connor is a New York-based writer, speaker, and mentor to men and founder of Man Talks, a platform dedicated to offering healing and brotherhood to men around the world. He's just published his first book, Men's Work, A Practical Guide to Face Your Darkness and Self-Sabotage and Find Freedom. And he runs programs to help men quit porn using a combination of Jungian psychology, somatic therapy, transformative breathwork and meditative practices. In this episode, I really wanted to pick Connor's brains on the vulnerability and pain that men are feeling to find out what men are experiencing and move more specifically into a discussion about porn, which I think is emblematic of many of the broader issues at play. Before I hit record, I flagged with Connor I would roam around a bunch of ideas, and I also invited him to push back on me where he felt it appropriate, which he did. Connor, thank you so much for joining me here on Wild. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I followed your work on Instagram for a while. That's where I first came across you. And I've often been surprised or just by some of the stuff that you share, which makes me aware of how little we understand about, I think, the inner life of men. And I feel that there's a phrase that you've used both in your book and I've heard you use it on one of your podcasts as well, which I think sums things up. It's a great starting point for this conversation. That is, the work of men begins with pain. So let's start there. What do you mean by that? Yeah, the the simple version is that most men have been dealt pain in their life. All men, most people have been dealt pain in their life. And the, the sort of maybe we could say sad truth or the reality for a lot of men is that they're not taught adequate or effective ways of dealing with that pain. So the sort of gold standard for most men is stuff it down, ignore it, don't deal with it you know, reject that you're actually in pain and all of these tactics, which in, in some places in our life actually can, you know, they, they can serve men in some areas of their life, but if it becomes a way of living, it actually can become a huge detriment. So the, the, the way of men begins in pain or a man's work begins in pain. The sort of core premise of that is that you as a man 
will be better by understanding the pain that you've experienced and how it's showing up in your life. Because there's this saying that your pain has its own intelligence. And when we don't try to understand our pain and understand the intelligence of that pain, it gets in the way of our life. And so a lot of guys actually spend their life running away from their pain, running away from the childhood abuse that they you know, experienced or the trauma that they experienced, or the bullying or the ostracizing or not being able to get a date for you know 20 years, et cetera. And they, then they don't deal with it and then it, it ends up sort of coagulating and coalescing in their identity and their personality and becoming sort of at the forefront of who they are. So that's mm-hmm. sort of that's sort of it in a nutshell. Maybe I'll pause there. Mm. I understand in you were this guy. I think in your book you describe yourself as having been the worst kind of asshole and you had avoided your pain. You'd bottled it up. You, you know, you thought that if you kind of squirreled it away, you could have a successful life. And until you found yourself, what did you call it? The Walmart Chateau or something like that? Was that it? And Chateau you had this, Walmart, yeah. That's it. <laughs> what was, you know, was there a thing, a realisation that shifted you from that space, and you can explain what that space was, to where you are now doing the work that you're doing now? Was there a, was there, was there a penny drop or an aha moment? You know, I, I wish that there was one. I think that would probably make my story a little bit more concise for for people. And I think it would make. I think that's what most people are looking for in their lives is like this aha moment where things click into place. And there's very rarely that kind of sil- silver bullet. You know, I think that that's been pedestalized within our culture. But you know, for me, there were multiple moments. One of them was living out of the back of my car in parking lots for a few weeks because my life had bottomed out. And I think one of the things that when I look back on that time, I realize is that there's a lot of men that are waiting to bottom out, that are sort of driving their life unintentionally or intentionally towards rock bottom because they believe that change is on the other side of that. And this is a very common theme that I see for a lot of men where, you know, for me in my life, everything looked really great on the outside. If you had met me in that time, I was traveling the world. I had a cool career. I was a classical singer. You know, I had a from on the, from the outside a great relationship with this wonderful woman. I was you know motorcycles and mustangs and like I was, I, I sort of looked like on paper I had the things that a young man would want. But behind the scenes, I was really struggling. I was struggling with addictive behaviors and porn and drinking and infidelities and no one knew. Like no one had a clue what was going on behind the scenes in my life. And that, that's the case for a lot of guys. And so for me, the, if there was an aha moment, it in some sense was hiding these things and ignoring the pain that I was in and ignoring the problems of my life was catastrophic. And I felt somewhat, oppressed isn't the right word, but I felt somewhat under the thumb of those problems. You know, I really didn't feel like I could do anything about them. And when I did try and do something about them, it didn't work very well. And and so I kind of felt at the at beholden to these issues that I was carrying around in life. And what I realize now is that addressing them, being transparent, being honest, you know, <laughs> being truthful, like all all these sort of like basic things that were very hard for me to do were were the the sort of like keys to my liberation. And this is the case for a lot of men. And I, and I think in the, can I swear on your show? Is that okay? Yeah, go for it. Is that, 
Yeah. So like in the book, I said, it's easier for men to say, fuck you, than it is to say I'm hurt. And that was me in a nutshell. It was so much easier for me to get into a bar fight or to pretend like everything was okay and to uphold this sort of image of, of being, you know, perfect or whatever it was, strong, et cetera, than it was to say, shit, I'm really struggling. Like I'm really having a hard time and I'm ashamed of my actions. I'm ashamed of my choices. I don't like who I've become. It was much easier to just try and keep up that front, which eventually collapsed. So yeah, hopefully that answers your question in some way. Yeah, it does. Hey, Connor, I'm really interested in that idea of bottoming out. And I do see it in men around me, this idea of waiting or hoping that, you know, you just reach rock bottom and then you'll address some of this stuff, this opening up, being honest, that kind of thing. Is there anything that you can speak to on that? Because it's it, it's it's almost like in some ways I feel that men are, are also precipitate a crisis so that they can speed up that bottoming out and then they can kind of get to that 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 crisis moment that will be the turning point and get them you know out of the car park in Walmart or whatever it'll be. Have you got any explanations as to why that happens? Absolutely, yeah. So uh, I think there's a couple of things that are very important here. Number one, there's a narrative within masculine masculine culture that says you are you are stronger as a man to the degree that you're able to suppress and repress what you're experiencing so this narrative says you actually develop strength by suppressing the stuff that makes you look weak or inferior or insecure etc and so part of the confrontation that every man has to go through is to realize that weaknesses are a part of life to confront his own insecurities and perceived inferiorities and to bring them to the forefront of his life so that he can work with them. So he has to kind of bump up against, in the book I wrote about this this rule I called the one rule of men, which is don't talk about what it's like to be a man who's struggling and suffering and you know failing. And so you have to kind of start to break this one rule that's there, that's sort of embedded in our culture and, and within masculine culture, male culture. The second thing is we have strip mined initiatory processes out of our societies for men. We've completely eradicated them. And the initiation process for men has always played a really, really important role. If you look at any culture, any society, any religion, et cetera, there have been these, you know, some sort of basic initiation processes. And then there's been some more very dangerous and, you know, sort of out there experiences that men have to go through. But the the purpose and the function of those initiation processes is a couple fold that's very important that ties into why men bottom out and why I bottomed out. Richard Rohr, this Franciscan monk, said that unless a man is brought on a journey of powerlessness, he will always abuse power. <laughs> and so part of an initiation process is actually to, in a contained way, in a safe, quote unquote, safe way, bring a young boy or a young man through a process of being powerless to something else much larger than him whether it's him being thrust out into nature and experiencing the just the hugeness of nature and how infinitesimally small he is 
or going through an experience where he has to, you know, fight or or kill or grapple with something that is much more dangerous than he is, right? And so all of these experiences are meant to have that young boy or that young man go through this process of understanding who he becomes when he feels powerless. Because the the reality is that if a man doesn't experience that young and early on in his life, he will actually start to create what I call pseudo-initiations. And he'll try and, and unconsciously create circumstances in his life that he feels overpowered by so that he can then test himself, so that he can then break free from this. And that might be a divorce, it might be a failed business, it might be in you know some type of addictive behavior or whatever it is, but he'll create these circumstances in his life to bump up against this sense of powerlessness and see, who do I become? Do I have what it takes psychologically, emotionally, physically, maybe even spiritually? And, and it teaches him something about life. And so when these initiation processes are, are taken out of culture and society and men don't have a chance to go through them, they will try and create this initiation in their relationship, in their marriage, in their business, in the workplace, with friends, mm. with family. And the challenge is that you know, culture, society, and relationships end up paying the price for what we should be, in my opinion, and maybe people don't agree with this, but it, what I think we should be supporting men with is bringing them through these types of experiences because in many ways, it's a maturation process for the masculine, for men to understand their own sense of potency, how they relate to their own power physically, mentally, psychologically, and emotionally, and then how they interact with the world from that place. But if you're a man who's completely disconnected from his own sense of potency and power, then you're not, you're going to be reckless with it. You're going to pretend like you don't have it. You're going to go out into relationships and abuse it. Like all of this type of stuff will, will happen when we don't have these types of experiences. So my, my work predominantly is in that realm. Yeah, I'm so glad you explained it like that. I've heard you talk to that effect before and yeah, yeah a real it was a real moment of awakening. I've heard you talk about it in the context also of when men are in relationships, they can often find themselves pushing up against women. Um, you know, mm-hmm. when they don't have that dynamic perhaps with a father or in a initiation type scenario in their, you know, in adolescent years, it can carry over into relationships and they'll push up against the female in their lives. Have I got that right? Because I find that a really interesting way of explaining sometimes what happens in, in relationships between men and women. Yes, there's there's sort of two parts that show up there. So Carl Jung very famous psychoanalyst from the early 20th century, he had this great saying where he says, a woman stands where a man's shadow begins. A woman stands at the very edge of what a man understands and knows about himself. And so there's something within men, within more masculine oriented people, but men specifically, because that's what we're talking about here, that wants to sort of test their edges right? That want to sort of see what they're capable of, that wants to sharpen themselves, that wants to press against the world and kind of see where do I stand? Where am I, 
you know, where are my limitations? Where, where can I push and what's my capacity? And when a man doesn't have really healthy male relationships in his life and he doesn't trust men, what will often happen is that he'll try and bring that same energy, that same sort of psychological sharpening to women in his life. And he'll start to become more combative and ornery and, you know, sort of unintentionally try and use the relationship as a, as a training ground for him to mature. And if you've ever heard the saying, iron sharpens iron, it gets thrown around all the time, right? Iron sharpens iron. Most people don't really have a depth of understanding what that actually means. If you just replace iron with masculinity, what, what it means is masculinity sharpens masculinity. And so for a lot of men, how they try and sort out what it means to be a man, what it means to be a good man, what it means to be a healthy masculine man is by being around other men and beginning to discern what is right and what's not right. And if you've been somebody who's, you know, a young man that grew up in a fatherless home, because there's one in four kids in America that are going to grow up without a father in the household, you can go through most of your childhood into your adult years with very little contact with any men, never mind having a consistent male role model that is modeling what you could do, what you should do, and what you definitely should not do, <laughs> right? And so, so we, we sort of miss out on those pieces. And what happens is that for men, they bring that part. It doesn't go away, that drive, that desire to see what they're capable of, to meet their edge, to sharpen themselves. It doesn't disappear. It just ends up having nowhere else to go, but getting funneled, but then getting funneled into the relationship. So that's the one piece. And then the other part of it, which is really important, is that uh, in in a heterosexual relationship, is it's what we're talking about here. In a heterosexual relationship, a man's shadow, his darkness, his reactivity, his insecurities, his fears, his inferiorities, all of those things are going to get brought into the relationship. They're going to get activated, activated by his partner and vice versa for the women that they're dating, right? So with women, it's just the opposite, that, that men are going to trigger and activate that part of us. And so that's why a lot of men, you know, they get into relationships. They have a higher tendency of shutting down statistically. They have a higher tendency of pulling away, of not wanting to have the conversation. It's their means or, or they become very loud, right? They'll become very loud and dominant and direct and, and almost borderline assertive. And all of that has to tie in with this part of him that's trying to grapple with what I call self-leadership. Can I lead myself in a way that is effective, that I have respect for, that I'm proud of? And if, if you're a man who just doesn't have other men in your life, to hone those skills, those physical, emotional, psychological communication skills with, then there's just nowhere else to do it but in your relationship. And that can be very tumultuous and very cumbersome for for both parties. Yeah. It's such an interesting perspective on on things. Yeah, I can see it playing out in a lot of my friends' relationships and, and in dynamics that I've been in. What, what I find interesting, though, is that when we're in a situation where we're wanting to address these issues, because I think, you know, 
we can add to the picture that you've just painted the fact that men are having less and less friendships. So they're having less and less men in their lives once they enter adulthood for sharpening their masculinity, you know, and having these conversations. But regardless, my sense is that men are avoiding these kinds of conversations. Fixing the masculinity crisis tends to be something that I think has been left with women to do to the point where you've said masculinity and what it means to be a good man is now almost entirely defined by women. And you've also said, and you know, I know a number of different um, men in this space um, are saying that men are often deemed defective women. And that's a huge problem, right? Can you flesh this out? And also the implications of it, I guess, more broadly. This terrain is, is very sensitive terrain, right? Like, did you ever play that game Minesweeper on your phone? No, it might be a generational thing. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, there's this great game called Minesweeper on, I think it was on, you know, computers back in the day. And, you know, I don't know if it was on phones, but it was definitely on computers back in the day. And, and basically you'd have to try and guess where the mines were. And I feel like when we talk about some of these gender topics, they're, they're just minefields and you don't know where you're going to step on a mine with somebody. And so I just ask for sort of grace and understanding as I traverse this territory. I think in, in some ways, you know, post-sexual revolution, post the, the fight for equality, we just didn't, you know, we we just didn't sort of really fully know how those things were going to play out, and they've done wonderful things. I think in many ways they've supported the world, they've supported, you know, our our, I mean, our economy, which I don't know if we really want to talk about that part, but you know, they've supported our lives, they've supported freedom, they've supported liberation in a lot of ways, and I think in in what's happened is that it's dislodged what we're very clear gender rules for a very long time. And I'm not saying that those gender rules were good or bad or ugly. I'm not having a moral conversation about them. I'm simply saying that it really disrupted those roles and disrupted them to such a degree that it, I think it's left, oh, balloons, there we go. I think it's left a lot of people sort of, you know, spinning, trying to understand where they stand and what it means to be a man. And so I think, you know, sort of post how we want to call it sort of like feminist revolution or post-feminism, I think in many ways, men did try to stop and pull back and say, what, what do I, what do I, what am I missing? What do I need to know? What do I need to hear? And not all men, not every single man, but I think a lot of men were trying to say like, okay, how do we create an equal and just society? How do we create room and space? What do we need to know? And I think in that process, what ended up happening was that it became a little safer for women to define what it meant to be a good man, because there was all these sort of social issues that women were, you know, starting to talk about and, you know, problems in marriages and domestic violence and, you know, not being able to vote and all, all these types of things started to converge all at once. And I think what ended up happening was for a lot of men, they said, okay, we'll take a big step back. We'll hear what you need to say. But in doing so, I, I think that I think in a lot of ways, a big portion of the male population gave over aspects of what it means to be a man and aspects of defining what healthy masculinity is. And much like women would likely not want men to define 
what it means to be a good woman, or they wouldn't want men to define what it means to be healthy, you know, a healthy feminine woman or expressing healthy femininity. Men don't really want that either, right? And so this gender war has erupted where women are trying to tell men, this is how you need to act and operate. And again, not all women, but some women certainly are. And they're saying, this is how you need to act and this is how you need to operate. And in, and in some ways, it's, it's, it's a byproduct of being under the thumb of men for so long, being told how to live and how to operate and what to do and how to express themselves and how to dress and all of those types of things. And so I understand where it's come from, but we need to come back into a kind of almost like gender moderist perspective where we can allow one another to coexist and we can allow one another to express and we can allow one another to to define and refine what it means to be good men, what it means to be good women, and what that looks like within our culture and our society. So it's a very complex thing. There's a lot of aspects that play into it, but those are some of the pieces that I think have largely caused a lot of chaos and confusion. And the last thing that I'll say is I think that I think that a major contributing factor to this is what I call the epidemic of male vacancy. And the epidemic of male vacancy, I've just started to write about it and talk about it, is men are largely vacant from young boys' lives, right? One in four households won't have a male role model. You have less men going to college than ever before. So within the next five years, in most colleges in America, you are going to have two women graduating for every one man. Now, that's a problem for educated women because what do educated women want? Women with degrees predominantly want men with degrees. And so you are like, we're just creating a dating pool and a mating pool in our culture and a society that's wildly problematic where men aren't sort of meeting criteria that women are looking for and women aren't meeting the criteria that men are looking for. And so there's this huge influx that's that's sort of causing chaos. But the epidemic of male vacancy, so you have less men going to college and graduating college, you have 7 million men that are of working age in America that are not working and are not looking for jobs. You have more men in the ages of 18 to 30 living at home than ever before. You have more men of that age bracket living at home than living with a partner. So a lot of young men especially have started to pull out of society. They've started to pull out from academia. They've started to pull out from the workforce. They've, they've started to pull out from dating. We have the highest percentage of young men that are single and not looking for a relationship. And so this this really should be a cause for concern. It should be a cause for conversation. It's gone again. And, and the last thing I'll say, and then I'll, I'll hand it over, which is to talk about the challenges that men are going through does not mean that we are not pro-women or that you are not pro-women. There's this sort of false um, equivalency that happens that as soon as we start to talk about how young men are struggling or men are struggling in some capacity, you're automatically labeled that you're anti-woman. And I, I think that that notion needs to be thrown out the window because it's not serving anyone. And we have to start to be able to have both conversations simultaneously. I take on board everything that you've just said there. And I think it's absolutely valid. This idea of these false equivalencies and comparing apples and oranges and zero-sum type arguments around gender are completely unuseful. But I'm wondering what you make of this one. I when when 
issues of masculinity come up on my Substack or here on this podcast. And I've had discussions in and around the Manosphere, Jordan Peterson, Andrew Tate, that kind of stuff, which speaks to, I think, a deficit of really good role models, you know, and speaks to this idea of having men in your life who can really demonstrate great masculinity when you're going through that transition period in in, in adolescence. But I am often asked by men, well, Sarah, what should we do? And I'm I'm sort of in a position where I say, I have to say to these, these men who are asking me in a very genuine fashion, I say, well, look, it's almost not up to me. You know, I think this is a discussion that men need to be having with men. You can be guaranteed that once you've got a bit of a game plan, go to any woman in your life, any collective of women in your life, we will be there ready to champion what you're wanting to do in this space. The problem is that men, I feel, Again, let's just assume we're not talking all men, but the bulk of men are not stepping into this space. And I've heard you do a discussion, I think it was with Chris Williamson, the British podcaster who speaks a lot about these kinds of topics. And I think he brought it up. It was a discussion that the two of you are having quite recently that when men have issues, we basically say, men, go and change yourselves. When women confront gender issues or when a minority group of some sort confronts issues, we will basically have a discussion about resolving it through society, having a discussion about what are the societal issues that are impacting this particular group and that that's not happening with men. And I guess I'm going around in a few circles here, but what I'm I'm sort of feeling is that quite often I am seeing men actually not wanting to address the societal issues because I think it's perceived that the social construct suits them. Now, the reason why feminism has been such a powerful force is that the social constructs did not suit women. We were fed up with it, right? We were sick of not being able to vote. We were sick of having to do all of the the housework and not get payment and, and sick of, you know, sexual repression and so on. And so we fought the system. I feel that the problem is, is that at the moment, men aren't seeing clearly that the system is not suiting them. The system is now problematic for them. It is now causing them harm, injury, you know, the diseases of despair affect, I think, you know, three times as many men as they do women. And when I have men come to me sort of asking, you know, a woman, me as a woman to to give them advice on things, it, it's a tricky one, right? I mean, it's a minefield, as you say. And I suppose my question really is, what can be done here? The missing link is that men aren't quite seeing that they probably need to start challenging the masculine role, you know, and their part in it. Now, it's hard to step down off a pedestal, right? And masculinity has traditionally had the better, you know, been served the better deal in the scenario. And, yeah, I think that's a conversation that needs to be had, letting go of that traditional masculinity and then wanting to fight the social structures that hold this bad behaviour and this problematic behaviour and this painful behaviour in place. What do you think of all of that, Connor? I know it's a lot to take in. No, no, that's that's okay. Well, I think, I think that as soon as we start to tr- to undermine "quote unquote" traditional masculinity, it turns into a, a false flag operation. And so, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that it creates, it feeds, it. it, it in my opinion, it fodders some of the gender war because what ends up happening is that rather than men looking at some of the issues that are happening 
within male culture socially, there's this there's this confrontation where it's like, well, I'm going to disprove that you're wrong because now you're saying that traditional masculinity is false or incorrect or not needed or it's creating all these problems. And so what ends up happening is that that becomes the battlefield. That becomes the place where the argument or the energy goes. And I, I don't know if I would even fully agree that traditional masculinity is problematic. Like, you know, that the American Psychological Association, the APA in 2019, put out guidelines to tell therapists who, by the way, are predominantly women, right? It's 78% mm -hmm. of therapists are female. So if you are a man in America trying to find a male therapist, you already have a hard time. But if you're a black man or an Asian man trying to find a, a male black therapist or a male Asian therapist in, in America, you are going to have a really hard time, right? So anyway, they, they gave out guidelines and in them, they said verbatim traditional masculinity is on the whole harmful. So that for me will immediately, you will immediately lose a huge population of men in the conversation, just automatically. They're just, they're not engaged in your conversation. They're totally checked out because what you're telling them is who you are and how you express yourself is wrong and harmful and toxic. And so automatically it's creating this type of polarization where those men are going to be more interested in battling what battling that, right? Battling that notion than they are going to be doing anything else. But this is the tactic that I think a lot of society has taken. And they've, ta they've, they've taken that approach because in many ways, we have been trying to solve male issues with more female-oriented solutions. Even therapy in itself, while there's, I mean, I, you know, have studied countless therapeutic modalities. My mentor right now is you know, been doing Gestalt therapy for 40 plus years and developmental psychology and all of these things. I believe in the therapeutic institution and the therapeutic institution in some ways kind of misses the mark when it comes to working with men because it is more about validating your experience and validating what you're feeling and, you know, maybe giving you some reframes for those experiences but it doesn't, where, where it misses out, where it gaps out for men is it doesn't help you develop any real competencies. And so for a lot of men, there are a lot of big competencies that they're needing to develop. So if you go into therapy and you talk about your relationship for 12 months and you feel better about the conflict, but you haven't learned any real skills to better communicate with your partner and you're a man, you're going to feel very frustrated and you're going to feel like the the therapeutic interaction has been lacking. So that's me going sort of down the chain to a very specific example. I'll come back up to the, to the sort of 30,000 foot view. In psychology and in every therapeutic modality and in any spiritual modality, when you label something as bad, toxic, unhealthy, et cetera, you create a dissonance with that part, with that element that does not allow you to interact with it or integrate it. And what our culture has done in a very large way has said, there's very specific ways to be a man and to be masculine that are socially acceptable. And if you don't fall into those categories, then you are toxic, you're unhealthy, you're bad, shame, shame. And 
that is never going to work for men or for women. And so we have to find a better way. So saying things like traditional masculinity is harmful or, you know, talking endlessly about toxic masculinity, I would, I would vehemently argue that the conversation around toxic masculinity has actually caused more of it because it engages the fight in both men and women. And it's using shame to try and coerce people into change. And much like if you tried to get a friend or, you know, your girlfriend or your wife or your husband or your boyfriend or whoever to change via shame, it's not going to work. It's going to breed resentment and it's going to breed disconnection. And yet this is the social experiment that we are trying to use with men. So when it comes to, when it comes to the man's part in this, I do think that men are, men do operate generally a little differently from women in the sense that women are have this beautiful capacity to bond together very quickly and build social structures to go out and talk about social issues and you know go knock on the doors of politicians and change legislation and do these things that they can you know you can see the problem you can say hey we have to change these things and for men that's a little bit more challenging Men are a little bit more siloed. Sometimes we'll come together under a specific cause, but then, you know, getting all the men together under that cause can be a little bit challenging. So men do need to come together and talk about some of these challenges because a very simple example of that, Richard Reeves talked about in his book on boys and men, is like young boys entering into the education system, young boys going into grade one are automatically at a disadvantage from young girls because their prefrontal cortex is underdeveloped compared to that girl's. We know that neurologically, we know that on average, young boys are just going to be behind cognitively in their language skills and their social skills. And so there's something in the UK called red shirting that they've talked about implementing, which is basically just holding young boys back a little bit and giving them a chance to to actually catch up developmentally so that when they enter into the system they're better equipped they're more social they're able to communicate what they need and so i think it's these types of things that men absolutely need to come together on and i think it's starting to happen you know i see richard reeves the brooking institute chris williamson there's many guys that are out there that are starting to have these conversations at a broader level but then are also starting to bring these things into, okay, mm-hmm. how do we actually alter the system that we're working within, whether it's the education system, the government bodies, legislation, et cetera, to actually support young men so that as they go through these systems, they are you know, m- better equipped, that the systems may be altered to how those young boys and, and young men operate. And then giving them not a leg up on other people, but just an equal playing field. Because when you look at the data, and I'll end on this part, I promise. (laughs) When you look (laughs) at the data within the education system, as an example, young girls are destroying young boys. They are destroying them. I mean, young women in today's world, the education system, while it was largely created by men, very clearly seems to support the developmental and learning skills of young women far, far and above young men. And so we need to be able to look at that system and alter it in some shape or form to make sure that young boys and young girls are on equal footing. Yes, for hopefully obvious reasons, as we've talked about.
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Thank you for explaining all of that and also challenging me on perhaps some of my wording. I think what I'm really speaking to when I say we need to question or dismantle traditional ideas of masculinity, I'm really talking about the social structures that prop up, I guess, certain ways of doing things that impede masculinity from flourishing as it could. So the education system, we do need to look at that. We need to be looking at a whole range of societal structures. And the feminist movement was you know, born out of questioning social structures that were holding back women. My point is that Men need to be doing that now. I almost feel there needs to be an equivalent of a feminist movement where men are, are really getting engaged in this rather than turning to women to to sort of show them how to do it. Mm. And I feel that there is a vacuum of male leadership. And so when you have that, you see people like Andrew Tate stepping into the fold and really providing something that men are very much needing, young men are needing, they're needing some kind of guidance, certainty, sturdiness. I've spoken to a lot of young men about this, you know, in various forums. And they say, we we like the fact that they're like, you know, they, they, they provide direction. It, there's this kind of solidity to what they're saying. And they're saying, they're, they're giving us instructions on how to be a man. And before we move on, I might actually get your just top line thoughts on, on that, on what, what men are gleaning from people like Andrew Tate and Jordan Peterson and others in the manosphere, what are they getting from them that they're not getting elsewhere? Well, I think in some ways this plays into the male vacancy that I was talking about. You know, if you have gone through life not having a quote-unquote positive male role model or you've not had a, a man in your life tell you the truth that life is going to be freaking hard, and that you need to work and that you need to put effort into things, whether it's your body, whether it's your company, whether it's your finances, whether it's a relationship, that you're, you're going to have to develop value, skills, competency, et cetera, within yourself. And so when you don't have that, when you don't have this, you know, an example of that, like I have a two and a half year old son. And so, you know, God willing, I'll be around for a number of years. And he'll be able to see directly and indirectly what it looks like to have a father who confronts challenges, who goes through hardship, who deals with pain and health issues and, you know, knock on wood, hopefully not financial, you know, unrest, but maybe, I mean, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. And so 
So when you don't have those things, you have men who are unapologetically concise, who don't give a shit about whether people like them or not. And they have determined who they are and they've determined the type of life that they want to live. And here's the secret that most men know that's attractive to women. Whether women want to admit it or not, that is attractive for a lot of women. When a man knows who he is and he knows what he wants and he has direction, he is going to be far more attractive than the man's like, I don't really know what I want to do with my career. And oh, I didn't feel like going to the gym today. And I didn't really want to work. I didn't want to save the money. And so I spent it on this, like, you know, PlayStation 5, at, you know, at 50 years old. It's like, who are you going to take, right? Who are you going to be attracted to? You're going to be attracted to the man who has put in brutal amounts of effort to develop himself, to educate himself, to work on himself. And so I think for a lot of guys, one, they they know that they're going to have a higher likelihood by following some of that advice to attract some women, maybe the majority of women, but it kind of goes off the rails with some things, right? And so I think for a lot of young men, there's just, there's confusion, there's vacancy, there's not a lot of real mo male role models. And so Andrew Tate has become the archetypal older brother, right? That's telling you to get your shit together and not to listen to people and go buy the Bugatti and, you know, date multiple women, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Jordan Peterson has been the archetypal father telling young men to go clean up their rooms and to stand up straight and to dress properly, you know, just basic shit that they should have been told. <laughs> like, I don't know what else to say. And so, but I think where, where some of these things, and this is the part that is very fascinating. I think where some of these things get very controversial is that somebody like Andrew Tate has learned how to play the system. He knows that if he does one simple thing, he will become viral. And that one simple thing is say a truth couched in something inflammatory. And so you say a truth, you say something that's truthful, that a lot of men are like, yes, I feel that way. Yes, life is hard. Yes, I need to put effort in. I need to add value. Couched in some inflammatory comment. And you're going to have the young, you know, you're going to have one side of the fence be like, oh, that truth is so good. That other stuff, you know, it's sort of weird and I'm not sure. And you're going to have the other side of the fence sharing it and yelling from the rooftops about it because he said some inflammatory shit. And so I think that that's the place that we're in right now. And <laughs> I, again, I don't have a moral commentary about it. I'm just trying to describe why these yeah. things happen, you know, and my, my hope is that if I've done my job right as a parent, my son won't need to go and watch Andrew Tate. Like that's just, <laughs> he, he won't need that in his life. Yeah. Oh yeah. One man saved. The Andrew Tate thing's really interesting because that's the feedback I get as well from young men is that, oh, well, I really like some of the things he says. I know sometimes he says some really wrong stuff, but the good stuff that he says, I'm, I'm, I'm there for that. That's that I've heard that a number of times and I'm glad you've explained and, and pieced out that idea of the certitude, the unwavering, concise, planting of yourself and your opinions and your take on life it, it, it's what men are craving and I think all of these discussions this discussion we're having the questions that a lot of people ask about the role of Andrew Tate and Jordan Peterson it's all around the fact that we we need to get a much better understanding of what's going on for men because 
we, we don't have that understanding today. There's a couple of things I just want to cover off with you before we get on to porn. I'm particularly interested in, in, in your take on porn because you've done some incredible work recently on this. Vulnerability is something that I think is just a really big hot topic. We don't have to linger here for too long. But one thing, you know, you have posed is this idea of whether the world really wants more vulnerable men. And I've heard you say something about when a woman wants a man to be more vulnerable, what she's really saying is something a little different. Can you actually just explain to listeners what a woman's asking and what a a man is hearing and where the disconnect is happening? Yeah. So the basic version of it is that men here open up more, talk about your feelings more. And my interpretation has usually been women are saying, know what you're experiencing internally and be able to communicate communicate it in a way where you're signaling that you have support for it. Meaning you have men in your life that you can talk to about it. You have support around it. I don't think that any you know long-term relationship is going to be very viable if both parties rely entirely on one another for all social emotional support. And so I think what a lot of women are looking for is oftentimes, can you tell me how you're feeling? Can you be honest about it? Can you know what you're experiencing and communicate that to me, but also have most of the time, not always, but most of the time have resources that you can go and get support for that. And that's that's a very attractive thing. And unfortunately, for a, for a lot of men in Western culture, what they've heard is just be super vulnerable, just share what you're feeling all the time. And so a lot of men have just turned their partner, turned their girlfriends and their wives and their partners into emotional processing centers where they they haven't built out the support network around them to actually deal with the challenges and the stuff that they're going through in life. And so they end up, you know, maybe oversharing or sharing too often constantly on a regular basis and needing their partner either directly or indirectly, right? Intentionally or unintentionally to help them sift through the challenges that they're facing in their life. And it burdens the relationship very heavily. And so there's a lot of men who are very confused because they're like, wait, I've been told for decades that I've, I should be more vulnerable. I should open up more. And I've been doing that in my last relationships, but none of them are working out. You know, the, the, like, that I'm getting broken up with, I'm getting dumped, I'm being told that I'm I'm like too emotional or whatever it is, what, what's going on? And so that can lead a lot of men to swing the pendulum in, in a very opposite direction. So that's sort of it in a nutshell. Yeah. I really enjoy the way you put that. And I think a lot of women listening will think that is exactly what we're asking. You know, when we're asking a man to be vulnerable, we're just wanting to know you kind of got it sorted. You've got a bit of a game plan going on here. You know, you're not going to lean completely on me. And I think it goes to the heart of so much of what you're trying to do and I applaud you for, and that is to to create understanding. What are we really trying to tell each other here in this complex world where the gender roles, you know, have been shaken up for quite some time now? There's so much I want to ask you. I'll ask one last question relating to relationships. I often say, Connor, that, you know, the feminist movement did great work in terms of getting the workplace a little bit even, you know, lots of work in the realm of sex sex and sexual relationships, you know, consent discussions, that kind of thing. And, and there's a lot more work to be done there, but progress has been made. But one area where we almost 
things haven't budged and where I think we really do struggle is the notion is is in the realm of relationships, like male, female relationships, the very private, private sphere. And it's interesting. I'm watching so many pain points here. You know, we could cover all kinds of things, ghosting, we could cover off, you know, struggling to commit. We touched this on, on this a little earlier, the idea of women earning more than men. And there's a number of studies that I know that you're familiar with that have shown what goes on there in relationships. Men become a lot unhappier. They tend to cheat more. They can become more aggressive as well when their partner earns more than them. Maybe I should put it to women, you. Women also tend to bits, cheat more as well. That's right. That's right. There's all kinds of things that, that go on there. I know that you've had discussions around all of these points. Maybe what I'll do is ask you to sort of choose one of them and perhaps one that you feel is particularly relevant at the moment amongst the clients that you're speaking to and and and, and perhaps what your framing of that issue could be. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a number of different things. I mean, I think one of the big ones that I've talked about is that, you know, 42% of American households women are going to be out earning their male counterparts. That's usually a very shocking stat for a lot of people, but it has altered the roles of people quite a bit. I think people that are in relationships need to be talking about sex and money a lot. I think they need to have a lot of conversations about, you know, where they stand on sex and where they stand on money and what they want and et cetera. But, you know, I think in, in many ways, one of the challenges is that when you look at the data, there's been a lot of data that somebody like Dr. David Buss has has done research globally. And when you look at the indicators of what women are looking for in a relationship, women are are predominantly still looking to date up and to the right. So they're looking to date men that either earn as much as them, if not more. And that's across the board. That's across cultures, that's across countries, religions. I mean, it just doesn't matter, right? And so there's this very interesting time that we're living through in our culture right now where there are a lot of women making very good money and a lot of those women are now starting to struggle to find the men that they ultimately are desiring and wanting because those men are in short supply and you know there's it's something like 45% of women are expected to be single and childless by 2030 and that's you know i think that kind of plays into some of this because I think in some ways our culture, our society isn't outputting the type of men that women are interested in. And so women are going to a small population of men and all sort of, you know, vying and fighting for attention with those men who are getting largely the the pick of what they want. And those men are less likely to want to settle down because they know that they have a ton of optionality. You know, they just, their, their Tinder inbox is full, their Bumble inbox is full, they're getting attention at the coffee shop, they're getting attention at the gym, and so they know they don't have to settle down, right? And so I don't necessarily have advice on this front. I think it's a very challenging one. I think that both men and women have to really start to come back to what their values are. And I think the last thing is that I think, and this has always been a hard one to, to say, but I think that we need to orient ourselves relationally to understand what we are are willing to live with. Because I think that some people in our culture and our society have such high standards 
that the pool that they're trying to date from is so infinitesimally small. And there was this study done that asked men and asked women, if you found a, a, a partner that was an eight out of 10, that sort of fit 80 to 90% of your requirements, would you be satisfied with that? And men were overwhelmingly a yes, and women were overwhelmingly a no. They considered that to be settling. And so for there is this gap and there is this difference between how men and women look at dating. Men look at an eight out of 10 on not a, not a looks wise, but their sort of checklist of what they're looking at from a partner as a win. They look at that as a success. Whereas women look at an eight out of 10 on their checklist as a complete failure. And I think that that is a, a part that's also feeding into it. And yes, men can be better. And yes, men, you know, like <laughs> this is part of my work is like communicate better, you know, be your best version and your best self, do what's necessary in order to develop yourself and build yourself into the type of man that you, you respect. Because when you are that man, you are fundamentally more attractive to women. And so we, ha we have our part in that, but I think it's a, I think it's a both sides thing. So mm. that part for me is a very interesting piece of the data point. I could talk to you forever on hypergamy and how all that works and all the different shifts and who gets spat out each end. You know, it's often older women, educated, earning a lot of money, successful, sorted, and, you know, young men in their 20s who are still living at home with mum and dad in the garage with, mm. you know, doing their plumber's apprenticeship. And, you know, those two cohorts don't tend to have a lot in common, but we could talk about that forever. I want to move on to porn. I, I realise, you know, we're running out of time and this is a topic that you have spent some time on. You've got personal experience in it. You've just put together a porn detox program. I think you've just finished your first cohort. How prolific is porn today amongst men? It's worse than people expect. And I think that we're, we're playing out this untested, unintentional research on men specifically that I think is damaging relationships in a big way because you, porn is a substance. It's something that you can consume. So imagine having, imagine, you know, having a, 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 a liquor cabinet in your pocket at all times, or a weed dispensary or a cocaine dispensary in your pocket at all times that was unlimited and that fed you exactly the type of booze or, or cocaine or weed that you wanted to consume. That is what porn is. You know, OnlyFans was a $5.4 billion business in 2021 in one freaking year. Right. And 95 to 98% of those consumers that are paying that money are men. And, you know, women are on the recipients of, of all of that money, which is, you know, interesting in a whole other conversation of itself. <laughs> but, in, you know, I think in many ways, all, so many men have become overly sexualized where they can go on Instagram and see, you know, thirst traps of women in bikinis with inspirational quotes underneath and you know, whatever. And so I think for a lot of guys, porn has become this means of one, they're just inundated. I mean, it's just a fucking tidal wave of boobs and ass that they, that they have a trouble escaping from because once they start to signal on their, you know, social media app that they, that they look at that content, then all of a sudden they get fed that content incessantly and it becomes insidious and they, it's very hard to break out of that. And so there's this notion of like, 
well, men just need to be better. And, you know, this is one of those, like men should just pull themselves up by their bootstraps or why do men sexualize women? And it's like, well, holy shit, the algorithms are, if a man looks at one of those, then the algorithm is going to feed him that incessantly. Why? Because the algorithms know and the, the companies know, these social media companies know that if, if they can get a man to look at that, he's probably going to spend a lot more time on their app. So I think that porn has has really, and this isn't a moral statement. I'm not saying that porn is morally wrong or morally bad or morally good or anything like that. I'm simply saying that for a lot of men, porn has become the mistress in their relationship, right? It's the other woman. And porn has become something that they use to help them regulate their nervous system. So when they're feeling anxious or angry or lonely or bored or frustrated, or they can't sleep or whatever it is, they watch porn and they get off and their body releases a whole bunch of neurochemicals that's, that allows their nervous system to reset. And so it's, it's very insidious. It can, seem, it can seem not so bad on the surface, but then when you try, like people have tried to go do research on this in, in colleges and they can't do the research because they can't find a, a test group that isn't watching porn. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty bad, I, I think, in, in all things considered. Now, there's a big movement away from it. I think there's a lot of guys who are not watching it anymore and who are disengaging from that entirely. But I think for a lot of people, myself included, I mean, it was really hard to stop watching it because it didn't seem like that big of a deal, but it becomes this sort of insidious problem that is lingering in the background of your relationship and your life. Without giving away too much of my own private life, but, you know, I've been single 15 years. I've witnessed the rise of porn, you know, um, amongst single men, married men, everyone in real time. And I've observed the way it has changed the relationships around me, but also the way that men interact sexually. I really enjoy the way that you Mm. explain it as a technique for regulating the nervous system. It's, it gives me a framing for understanding what men get from porn. And, of course, there's a lot of women who watch porn as well, and I'm not sure that it is for the same reasons. But one of the things that you say, you say a bunch of things. You say it, it masks things. It can mask some emotional issues for men. It builds a pseudo-relationship. And what that does is it's a very low-risk relationship you know, essentially, very little is demanded <laughs> of them, of men when they're engaged in, in porn. And of course, that's going to have ramifications with their IRL relationships with the women in their lives. Can you talk about your experiences having worked with, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of men on this? How are you seeing porn damaging and affecting their relationships with women? Yeah. So one of the big differentiating factors that I, I try and talk about as often as possible that I don't think many people are talking about is is that porn creates this, what I call a pseudo-attachment. So in psychology, attachment theory has become this very sort of hot topic that everybody's sort of talking about because attachment is at the root or the foundation of of our relationships, all of our relationships and how all of us do relationships. And for a lot of men who haven't had many healthy attachments in their life, it can become very easy to develop a a very strong attachment to pornography. And, 
you know, one of the things that I always say is that every addiction is an attachment issue, right? When you can't attach to your caregivers, when you can't attach to people in your life, you attach to substances, objects, and behaviors. We, we, just, we know this, right? This is very clear. And so what happens for a lot of guys is that there becomes this dependency. And this, again, this isn't all men, right? Some men have a fine relationship with pornography. They watch it once in a while. It's, you know, it's just like when they're aroused and they want to get off and it's, it's just simple, right? It's a very mathematical equation for some guys. But for other men, it becomes this kind of attachment where when the relationship is struggling or they want to engage in something that's confronting in the relationship and and they don't really know how to do it, they turn to porn, right? So if you get into a conflict with your partner or an argument, it's easy to go and use porn to just sort of like calm down or self-soothe or, or regulate your nervous system. Or if there's a certain type of sexual experience that you're wanting to have, but you feel very confronted and insecure about broaching the subject of what you want to do, it's easier to just continue to go and watch that on, you know, Pornhub or whatever you're viewing. And so it, it really has become this thing that is being, is showing up in a lot of men's lives in a lot of different ways and playing a different role. But the attachment piece is one of the main reasons why it's so hard for most men to quit. Because over time, what ends up happening is that porn fills the gap for something that we need. Whether that gap is comfort, whether that gap is sexual exploration, whether that gap is some type of closeness and intimacy, right? So for example, some of the biggest OnlyFans accounts, some of the, I don't know what you we would call them, not performers, but like I've totally lost the word, but whatever. So the the top OnlyFans accounts are largely sort of like the girls next door, right? And and they're providing what's it called? They're providing what's called GFE, girlfriend experiences. And so a lot of these women aren't just providing sexual content, they're providing some type of emotional connection or, you know, hey baby, how was your day and that type of stuff. And so it, it really has become something. And I think it's going to get much worse with AI. I think AI is going to disrupt the porn industry in the next five years in a massive way. I think it's going to put a lot of women out of, out of work and business, and it's going to hook a lot of men in a bigger way because you are going to have AI chatbots that you can tailor and curate to exactly what you want. And you're going to be able to interact with fabricated women that are, the, the pictures are AI generated, the video is AI generated, the chat box, you know, that you're interacting with, that's AI generated. And so it'll just remove men more and more and more and, mm. you know, the women that go with it. And I think to just to say one last thing about this, I actually think that AI porn is going to hit women in a much bigger way than it's going to hit men. Because when you look at when you look at things like, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey being one of the, you know, highest selling books of all time, when you look at some of the books that are out there that women really love to read and get immersed in, you can be in that world and it'll be AI generated, right? You can have your own, what's his name, Dorian Gray or whatever the hell his name is in the book. That's a painting, I think. That's a different, that's a different. That's a totally uh, different book. I can't remember the guy's you, name from Fifty Shades, yeah. but yeah. 
yeah, you can have your own version of that. That's going to be curated for your likes and how you want to be talked to. And, you know, the, and you know, he'll never tell you no, and he'll never be tired and he'll always be emotionally intelligent and he'll always be kind and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that porn is only going to get more addictive and it's going to be more of an escape for both men and women within the next five to eight years. Mm. Connor, it's it's hard to say what to do because I feel that the whole world is craving more IRL intimacy. And, you know, I, I write about this a bit in one of my books that we've been doing the diet version of life. You know, we do porn instead of real sex. We do online dating instead of meeting up and having a drink. And it's, you know, it, it, it's not satisfying and we're not feeling nourished. And it's hard to say what to do, but if we can be aware of these issues, I guess it's a first step. And I get the sense that a lot of men don't want to be watching so much porn. They are wanting real connections with real people. That's been my experience. And, you know, the more porn that these men watch, the more that they are becoming desensitized to the subtleties the risks that are involved, the courage required to be in a in real life scenario with another person. And it's it's sad to watch. It's sad. And I, I and I feel for men because as you say, they are being driven down these algorithmic traps, you know, and it's not something they want to be doing at which, you know, speaks to the service that you offer and why it would be immensely popular, I would imagine. Connor, as I say, I could talk to you for so long on all of this. I am fascinated by it for a whole range of reasons. And I will put all the details for people as to where they can find you and listen to your podcast, read your book, sign up for your courses, and also follow you on Instagram. Thank you so much for all your calm wisdoms and for pushing back on some of the stuff that I've said. I've enjoyed it a lot. Thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry, everyone, if that felt like a slightly meandering, incoherent at times jamming of a lot of information into one episode, but I really just wanted to get started on this conversation and I felt that Connor could do this with me. I also hope everyone listening takes my honesty about finding some of the perspectives that were raised challenging or new as a reflection of my concern and not patronising. The fact is these issues are not being discussed widely. And so I'm trying to remedy that in my own way. But in terms of what Connor shared, there are a few takeaways. I found it helpful to understand this idea of bottoming out, that men feel they need to do to access the mindset to deal with their pain, and how this can result in pushing up against the women in their lives. I went away and dug up the exact Carl Jung quote that he refers to. It goes like this, a woman always stands just where the man's shadow falls so that he is only too liable to confuse the two. The exact quote actually then goes on. Then when he tries to repair this misunderstanding, he overvalues her and believes her the most desirable thing in the world. Yeah, well, I spent a bit of time reflecting on that one. Now, I feel Connor and I didn't quite resolve what needs to be done. I'm not sure whether he feels that men need to go through their version of the feminist movement or not, where structures that hold men back from a full flourishing are questioned and adjusted where necessary, or whether men might still be too invested in these structures that prop up male power, or that they won't shift until things really bottom out. 
I think what Connor is saying is that the work needs to be done, perhaps in the first instance, at an intimate level with men. Men need help to understand what being vulnerable means, finding that sweet spot where they don't become simps in the process, and around facing their pain and around regulating their nervous systems in ways that don't cause damage. Then there is the whole porn piece. To sum up some of Connor's points, porn is so often about building pseudo-relationships that are low risk. And so this all sets men up for failure in in real life or IRL scenarios. Now, to be honest, what first caught my attention with Connor's work was a bunch of memes he circulated on Instagram a while back about how porn is how men self-regulate their nervous systems. And that was kind of mind-blowing for me. I kind of got it when he shared that information. Now, what this means is that when we see it through this lens, what AI and the apps and the algorithms are doing, well, it's abusive. I took a lot more from that conversation, but I am still digesting it. Uh, I want to keep this conversation going and to have far more of my assumptions and frustrations challenged to a better place. The gender war is a profound one, and it's not separate from all the other wars going on in the world today but it's potentially one that we have some agency over and we have agency over it now. We can work on it together now. Now, if you have experts or angles you'd like to see explored in this series, you can let me know about them over at Substack. That's sarahwilson.substack.com. The link is in the show notes. Uh, I'll also upload a discussion thread off the back of this podcast release where you can talk out a few of the issues with the rest of the community and with me. And I'll also ask Connor to join the conversation as well if you have some questions for him. Until next week, stay wild. Stay wild.